is about crimes that were committed in a country outside of Sweden by a perpetrator without any known ties to Sweden against uh, victims without any known ties to Sweden at the time. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg. And I'm Janet Anderson. We've done a few podcasts about how universal jurisdiction works. You know, when a state says that it can put on trial people connected to a crime that was not committed on that state's territory. Like the Syria trials in Germany, for example, that we covered earlier, universal jurisdiction is a concept that's really changed what can and can't be done in terms of justice for the victims. But it's a bit tricky sometimes, and it throws up some really interesting cases, like the one that started in Sweden during the summer, or the, let's say, the European summer in August. An Iranian man is facing charges for the murder of over 100 political prisoners in events that go back 33 years. He's uh, 60 years old and he's accused of participating in the killing of those prisoners, allegedly at the behest of Ayatollah Khomeini. The killings occurred in 1988 during the drawn-out Iran-Iraq war, so they're seen as war crimes. The Swedish indictment says that the suspect took part in mass executions and subjected prisoners to, quote, severe suffering, which is deemed torture and inhumane treatment, end quote. Now, joining us to discuss this case and to kind of delve into the legal aspects of this, because maybe even some of the introduction we've, we've given there isn't completely right. I'm sure we'll be, we'll be set right by Ada Samani, who's legal advisor to the Civil Rights Defenders, an NGO based in Stockholm. Hi, Ada. Hi. So Ida is monitoring the trial and we are going now to Gisu Nia. She's also monitoring the trial. She is uh, the board chair of the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center and she is also the head of strategic litigation at the Atlantic Council. Hi, Gisu. Hi. So um, before we start with the uh, legal stuff, Gisu, just give us some background. How was this person actually found? How, how did they get hold of him? Well, he was arrested at an airport in Sweden. So as he was flying to the country and showed up in the airport, then he was arrested. And there's actually a whole, I would say, a tale of intrigue around how he was arrested and what led up to that arrest. I was informed about how that happened uh, shortly thereafter. I don't know how many of the details are public, but I will say that if any listeners are interested, I think that some folks have been giving me media interviews on it who were close to the event so they can look up his name and, and see Hamid Nouri's name and see uh, how he was arrested. So we hear that there's a lot of intrigue about arresting him. What I'm intrigued about more and how he got arrested is what is the legal background here? Is this a usual universal jurisdiction case that uh, we see, I would guess usual for me is how the Dutch and the Germans do it. Are there special Swedish technicalities at work here? Well, first, in the interest of not misleading the listeners, uh, I should add that Civil Rights Defenders has not been involved in the investigation or arrest of the defendant in this case. So our role is simply to monitor the trial. I would say it's a, it's a usual or typical universal jurisdiction case in the sense that the perpetrator in this case, or, or that the, this 
is about crimes that were committed in a country outside of Sweden by a perpetrator without any known ties to Sweden against uh, victims without any known ties to Sweden at the time. And so, I mean, Swedish legislation uh, allows for, I would say, so-called pure universal jurisdiction. So theoretically, at least, uh, Swedish authorities could prosecute someone that commits a crime somewhere outside of Sweden without any ties whatsoever uh, in Sweden. Although the prosecution is bound by kind of the rate of success of the investigation, if you want to put it that way. Uh, so if the prosecutor or the police sees that opening an investigation would not necessarily or be able to at all lead to an, to an indictment or that the investigation wouldn't be able to be conducted properly, then that will set the limits for the prosecutor and an investigation should not be open. So in practice, that means that prosecutors uh, are more likely to want to open an investigation if the the suspect is in Sweden or if there are witnesses or plaintiffs in Sweden. I'm wondering here, because the story is he's uh, this man was arrested when he got off the airport in Sweden. So that suggests to me that there was already a case being made and being investigated before he got off the plane, because how else do you get an arrest warrant? So are there now, are the main victims or the main plaintiffs in this case who speak for the victims, are they in Sweden? Well, there are there are indeed witnesses and, and plaintiffs in Sweden, but since the uh, I would say the the case has grown quite a lot since the arrest was made, and and there's there are now plaintiffs and witnesses uh, from all over the world, uh, not residing uh, in Sweden necessarily. So, Ida, why is it that Sweden ends up doing this particular case? Is it just because of the airport? connection because there's nothing else that really ties Sweden to this or am I wrong? Well it's this is not the first time that we're seeing a kind of universal jurisdiction trial in a in a Swedish context. I mean since the law allows for it we've actually seen around 10 previous trials if you only count the the kind of district court proceedings 10 previous trials uh, or UJ trials in Sweden previously, uh, then they've related to uh, crimes committed in, in countries in former uh, Yugoslavia, in Rwanda, Iraq and, and Syria. So this is the first case focusing on on crimes committed in Iran, I mean, internationally, but, but also in Sweden. And well, I would say that the reason we're seeing this case in Sweden, apart from the fact that it's, again, uh, legally possible to to indict this person in Sweden, would be the fact that, uh, well, he traveled to Sweden, but also there's a large number of plaintiffs and witnesses here, which is necessary to start with, I'd say. And can I turn to you then, Gisu, and ask you about um, whether this case actually resonates with the Iranian diaspora, because, you know, they must be some of them in Sweden, and they are where, where you are at the moment in the States. I mean, is there a lot of attention? To, is everybody interested in this case? Yes, this case is a really big deal. And part of the reason is because there have been, it's both because of the subject matter of this particular case, which are the killings of political prisoners, thousands of them that happened in the summer of 1988, for which there's never never been formal legal proceedings. There have been many different attempts to document what has happened. I was part of a people's court that was set up um, called Iran Tribunal. I was on the prosecutor's team for that. 
that happened at the Peace Palace in The Hague back in 2012. And there's been successive attempts to try to bring alleged perpetrators to justice in, in any possible forum. So this is a really big deal because of that particular subject matter, but it's also a big deal because it's the first time that an official or a former official or a representative of the Islamic Republic is brought to account for core international crimes in a legal proceeding, a criminal legal proceeding. There's been civil uh, lawsuits and things like that that have tried to hold folks accountable, but this is really uh, the first of its kind. And so it's gotten a lot of attention. And um, Clubhouse, which may be familiar as a social media app to some of uh, some of your listeners, it's kind of like a cross between a podcast and a radio show, was very big during the pandemic across the world because people really had nothing to do. And so they would go on and, and have conversations for hours. But it has particular resonance in Iran because Iran is a closed society, because it's not so easy to gather and have conversations. And so we see very vibrant conversations that have continued to this day um, in Persian with folks inside Iran and in the diaspora around these justice issues. And so I've been listening in on some of these rooms that have hosted families of the victims of the 1988 executions that have survivors that come speak and other folks who are involved in the process who've been discussing, you know, what this means to them. And I'm happy to kind of dive in on some of those points if it's interesting, but there's been a lot of interesting issues that have been raised in those rooms, including the importance of documentation. This is something that I feel a lot of human rights organizations have been talking about for years, but it, it has a renewed energy in this moment because people are observing, people who've been closely watching the proceedings because you can stream it in the Persian language and a lot of folks are, are sort of tuning in and following the coverage, they've been discussing, wow, this is so important to have really concrete documentation because otherwise how can we hold somebody like this to account? So there's lots of important conversations like that happening. But I would say one quick thing is that the general public in Iran continues to remain very unaware of what happened in 1988 because there was such a a very aggressive attempt by the state to really cover up what happened and the scope of these executions. And what we understand is that the case not only has, you know, this importance of being the first time that this is really looked at by a kind of regular court, uh, these crimes, but that there's also ramifications possibly for current Iran politics. Can you explain how that works? Yeah, so Iran's current president, Ibrahim Raisi, he is alleged to be a direct perpetrator in the events of 1988. And so his name has actually been mentioned in the proceedings in Sweden. And some of the witnesses have also claimed, not only in this proceeding or, or their evidence may come up soon, but also in prior documentation efforts, they claim to have seen him. And uh, he played a direct role. And so that could be of significance because obviously he will travel to different jurisdictions or, or we assume he will as other presidents of Iran have in the past. And so what does that mean in terms of 
the possibility that he could be brought before a forum. Obviously, head of state immunity will probably apply in many cases, but there is an ongoing conversation about that and you know what his potential liability could be. And, and he's not the only official. There are others who are in positions of power right now in Iran who played critical roles in what is referred to as, as the 1988 massacre. We all know from looking at cases that come before courts that sometimes they can be very limited, only very specific crimes, only very specific perpetrators, only very specific things that they can cover. And universal jurisdiction is no different. So, Gisu, just to start with you, what are your expectations around this particular case? Are you limited or are you expecting everything? I'm quite fine with, I mean, first and foremost, I'm really trying to follow what it is that the survivors and the families of the victims want, because they have been waiting for decades to get any sliver of justice for what has happened, or even answers about what has what has happened to their loved ones. Many of these folks continue to not have been given death certificates for their loved ones. They don't even know where their loved ones are buried. A lot of these folks were buried in unmarked mass graves. And so, you know, whatever it is that they want is something that I think is of, of, of utmost importance and really want to center it around them. But in terms of my expectations, I am, I am uh, pleased to see that something like this is moving forward because I think it energizes the efforts around holding perpetrators accountable and for not thinking that this is all a lost cause. I think there has been a bit of a sense of hopelessness around bringing perpetrators to justice. Iran's own judiciary is not independent. It's quite controlled by the intelligence apparatuses in the country. And so the idea that one can bring a complaint within the domestic space to try to hold folks accountable for torture, for crimes against humanity, that's just not going to happen. And so these sort of international processes or these um, processes in national jurisdictions under international law have been really encouraging for the human rights community. And it's also been eye-opening, I'd say, for new segments of the public, both inside Iran and in the diaspora, who may have been unaware of the extent to which these events, you know, what happened in 1988. Um, Ida, can I ask you to also reflect on that? What are your expectations with universal jurisdiction? Well, I would say that the, the case that is ongoing in Stockholm District Court now does, to some extent, highlight the limitations that comes with UJ cases. So I think the, well, the best example of that in, in this particular case is, is uh, perhaps the charge of murder. Uh, so there are two, two charges actually in this, uh, in this trial, one relating to uh, war crime and the other relating to murder under uh, kind of domestic legislation. And that second cha uh, charge uh, relates to prisoners or political prisoners at the time that were executed, but that did not or were not perceived as supporters of uh, the people's Mujahideen and hence uh, do not fit under the charge of, of war crimes, namely because the, the kind of armed conflict uh, part is missing uh, in, that, in that charge. And so one possibility, of course, uh, had this been or this trial been ongoing elsewhere, 
could have been to have a charge of, war, of crimes against humanity. But since Swedish legislation uh, didn't criminalize or, or crimes against humanity weren't criminalized uh, in Swedish legislation until July of 2014, uh, there's no way of kind of retroactively uh, using the um, or yeah, charging the defendant for, for that specific crime. The same goes for torture in this case, that potentially uh, is something that could have come up in this case where torture isn't criminalized at all under Swedish legislation. And then we have uh, the alternative of perhaps charging the defendant uh, for genocide, both in the case of, of execution under uh, or against well, supporters of the Mujahideen or supporters of other groups, but they're uh, the prosecutor, for unknown reasons uh, so far, has chosen not to involve such a charge. And that last point is something I would perhaps keep my eyes on throughout the proceedings now until uh, mid-April, because one of the plaintiff lawyers has actually raised the point and openly uh, suggested that the prosecutor amend the charges to, to also include uh, genocide. So we'll see what, uh, what happens with that. My first thought that pops into mind is that famously, of course, the problem with genocide and, and in international law is that it excludes uh, political groups as potential target groups, because that's the only way they could get all the countries to sign it. So unless they're all the supporters of Mujahideen Khalq or, or, or the People's Mujahideen are a special uh, uh, religious or uh, ethnic group, you have a problem, but my my knowledge of Iran is not well enough to say that yes, they do all belong to this group or that group. Well, the argument here is that when it comes to when it comes to uh, political prisoners that uh, belong to um, other political groups, so to speak, that they were executed as apostates, um, and that relates to the the questions that they were asked by the so-called death committees prior to being executed. When it comes to uh, the prisoners that were uh, perceived as supporters of the Mujahideen, the, uh, one of the plaintiff lawyers now argues that they could be perceived as kind of holders of a, of a different religious belief than the, the government, so to speak, a different type of Muslim belief, so to speak. Gisu, this um, all starts to raise for me kind of the, the actual detail of what happened there really matters in terms of then what can be charged and how it can be charged. So just uh, probably we should have asked you this right at the beginning, but just tell us a bit more about what actually happened so it, so we get a bit more context. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as we noted, this relates to the killings of thousands of political prisoners in Iran's jails in the summer of 1988. And it all started with, and, and so there's never been an official count released by the state. Um, but the estimates are anywhere that from 4,500 to 5,000 individuals were executed within the space of three months, essentially. And this began pursuant to a fatwa that was issued by Ayatollah Khomeini, which, who, who's the founder of the Islamic Republic. He was the Islamic Republic's first supreme leader. And he um, issued this fatwa immediately following Iran's announcement that it had agreed to a ceasefire in the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq. And so this fatwa created death commissions 
um, so-called death commissions, as they were referred to by the prisoners. Um, they were composed of four members. And those death commissions would ask a few short yes or no questions about the political and religious beliefs of the prisoners. So questions would include things like, are you a Muslim? Do you pray? Do you believe in Marxism? Do you believe in the Islamic Republic? And really based on those answers, prisoners would be sent off to either be tortured or executed. Those executions would happen the same day or soon thereafter. Um, these questionings were brief. They were conducted in secret. There were no appeals. And one of the most significant things is that a lot of these individuals were low-level members of the MEK, the Mujahideen Khalq, um, or the Tuda Party, or other leftist groups. And so I think, you know, one thing about this is that there's been a narrative in the country to the extent that people have known about what's happened in 1988. There's been a, there's been a real push by the Islamic Republic to say, look, um, you know, the Mujahideen Khalq are enemies. They were trying to kill, you know, everyday Iranians. And so some people in these clubhouse rooms, as I've mentioned, have uh, joined to say, hey, my father was killed by the MEK, and therefore it was right to execute these folks, right? Um, and so those are these kinds of conversations that are happening, and there's been a real pushback and say, no, these were summary executions. A lot of these folks were arrested for things like distributing pamphlets, for allegedly giving, you know, the equivalent of 10 US dollars to a political organization. Like these are very low level charges. Most of the high level people were executed immediately after the Islamic Republic um, was established. Uh, so well earlier in the decade. And so that's what's really significant. One other thing to note is that um, these crimes are ongoing in the sense that families, you know, some of these uh, would be enforced disappearances because families still have no idea, technically, if their loved ones were executed. They've never been given a death certificate. They don't know where they're buried. Um, and if they continue to want to go and mourn or visit the cemetery where they know that a lot of these folks are buried in the sort of unmarked mass graves, Iranian authorities continue to disperse those individuals. They continue to put pressure on them and they don't allow them to properly mourn their loved ones. So the crimes, in a sense, are ongoing. And well, now this is all, uh, we see that it stirs up a lot of interest in Iran and in the diaspora. Is there either an interest in Sweden? Is there a press coverage for this case or is it? I'm trying to figure out how to say this in English. The Dutch have this expression that says the far from my bed show uh, when it's something that's happening far in abroad. And they really, even if it's in the Netherlands, they don't really care so much about a case about a conflict that they don't really know anything about. What's your experience in Sweden with that? No, but I would say that there's been uh, decent press coverage, mainly I'd say around the time when the suspect was arrested and uh, around the time of the first uh, pre-trial hearing in, in November or early um, December of, of 2019. And then, of course, now during the first week uh, of the trial in August. Between those, I mean, during like the past year and a half or so between the arrest and the trial, I'd say it's been fairly quiet. There hasn't been overwhelming interest, but, but decent press coverage, I'd say. 
And so we know that you're both involved in a monitoring project of this. So because we actually care about monitoring, uh, not everybody does. But uh, we, we think it's really important that people watch trials and tell other people about it. Who are you monitoring the trial for? Where will your information go to, Ida? Well, I mean, I think uh, one of the major challenges with all proceedings that are relating to mass atrocities that are taking place you know, outside of the country where the crimes were committed is, of course, to make those proceedings accessible to those that were directly or indirectly directly affected by them. And so... Uh, in this case, we know that there are hundreds of thousands of Iranians uh, inside Iran or in the diaspora that are somehow affected by the mass executions of 1988. Uh, so uh, the idea here has been to try to make the proceedings accessible to them. Not all are going to have the opportunity of traveling to Stockholm and following the proceedings in person. Uh, language is something that also stands in the way of that, where uh, the proceedings are being conducted in, in Swedish. So um, I would say the, the first target group here really is um, or are Iranians and, and primarily then those that have somehow been affected. Uh, and which is why we're also, I mean, we're publishing these um, reports in English on Civil Rights Defenders website. And then these reports uh, are also translated by Iran Human Rights Documentation Center to Farsi and published on their channels and, and on their website. But then I also want to add that uh, there's kind of a second group that we have that I would say we're partially also monitoring for, and, and that would be kind of international lawyers like ourselves, because I do think that there, there is great interest in the trial that is ongoing here, and not the least uh, because it's interesting to know how Swedish authorities are going to deal with uh, a crime that took place uh, exactly pretty much 33 years ago in a country outside of Sweden, where the authorities, I mean, neither the investigative authorities uh, or the court can access the crime scene. Uh, and where, like Kizu mentioned um, previously, uh, where also the majority of the uh, evidence that the court has access to is evidence that uh, has been collected by uh, survivors themselves or by family and survivor associations. Uh, that particular situation is something that is fairly similar, I would say, to the, to the type of cases relating to Syria, for example, that uh, civil rights defenders has been involved in, in trying to um, proceed with in, in a Swedish context, where uh, we're dealing, again, with crimes that have been committed in a, in a country that the authorities cannot access and where the majority of the evidence is is such that has been produced by survivors or uh, Syrian civil society organizations. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting to see how this then plays out and what that you can see how these kind of cases can be done, like with the Dutch uh, case about Ethiopia, which is a, a kind of similar thing. I just wanted to add, ask one thing of Gisu, because you said the trouble is the proceedings are in Swedish, but I thought Gisu said they're being streamed also in Iran. So I'm wondering who is streaming them, because I'm assuming it is not Iran state television doing that. No, it, it's definitely not. So, uh, you know, obviously the, the proceedings themselves are in Swedish, and then there is a Persian language room where Persian media, Persian language media can, um, are allowed to attend. And so what some... Um, you know, creative folks have done is set up uh, live streams. So they are streaming the Persian language proceedings to their channels. And there actually have been a bit, of, a few issues with that because one needs to get access 
to um, the room and sometimes there's a lot of seats that are blocked up. So just sort of, you know, mundane logistical things, but I am working on also sending a new person there to have, you know, multiple channels where this is being streamed. So if somebody's sick one day and just doesn't show up, we don't lose a day of it being streamed out because some folks are intently listening to it. And then as I noted, it's being discussed in clubhouse afterwards. And sometimes it's being streamed in a clubhouse, which I don't know if technically that should be happening, but that is happening and people are very interested in, in following along. Okay, to improve your Farsi, go on to uh, Clubhouse. So at least we know, know that tip uh, for now. Thank you both so much for explaining so many details. I'm sure we've left some stuff out. So let me start with you, Ida. Is there anything that you think that we should have asked you that we didn't get around to? Um, not that I can think of. I don't know if I should add something, though, uh, when it comes to how this case is, is different from uh, other cases that have been litigated in or UJ cases, so to speak, in Sweden. But because I would say that that it is different in, in a couple of different ways from cases that have or UJ trials that have been conducted in Sweden before. And I'd say that, uh, first of all, these are crimes that were committed a very long time ago, 33 uh, years ago, to be exact way before, or I mean, a decade before the Rome Statute had been uh, drafted and, and signed. The court can't really rely on the jurisprudence of any other court. If we're looking at Yugoslavia cases, for example, or, or cases relating to, to uh, crimes committed in countries in former Yugoslavia uh, that have been uh, conducted in Sweden before, then the court has been able to at least partially rely on, on uh, uh, jurisprudence from the I, uh, ICTY. Uh, that's not a situation we're seeing today. And secondly, uh, I can't really think of a, a case again, uh, or any other universal jurisdiction case in Sweden, uh, where the courts or the investigative authorities haven't really had access to the crime scene or any type of video or photo evidence, uh, which we've had, for example, in the, in the Syria cases. Uh, so I think that that poses challenges on its own. And it's going to be very interesting to see how uh, the court uh, deals with that. And Gisu, is there anything that you want to highlight that we didn't ask you or didn't ask you enough about? Yeah, there's one interesting conversation that's happening as a result of people following along and watching this proceeding, which is that there's a sense of pride around this fair trial and the fact that there is going to be a fair trial in Sweden, because that's something that political prisoners do not have in Iran, in Iran's system. And they haven't had it for decades. It's never been a thing. And it's what folks are striving for. So there's actually a lot of conversations around the fairness of these proceedings. Um, for example, I believe it was yesterday, the defendant had his um, children who came to court, I believe. And there was a conversation around, look, his family members can even come and attend the proceedings, which political prisoners are not afforded that opportunity in Iran. A lot of the proceedings that are carried under the pretext of national security charges are closed um, obviously, family members sometimes don't even know what's happening. They're not informed. Um, the defendants are not allowed to speak sometimes in the cases. The lawyers are not even allowed to say anything sometimes in these cases. So there's a real sense of awe around the fairness of these proceedings. So even if that fairness 
cuts in a way that would maybe affect some of the um, plaintiffs or witnesses in the case where, you know, the defendant would get some rights that typically, you know, that would maybe not help the case in the end or, or, or help convict him in the end. People are actually happy for that. They're actually um, excited by that and this, the fairness of the proceedings, because it's just something that has been so elusive in the Iran context. And I think there's a real desire to see more of that. And it's a conversation around edolat, justice, but this has been going on and you'll see that there's hashtags that are dedicated to this. And people are also uniting from different events that have happened, so different sets of executions. It's not only 1988. People are uniting around the sense that we want to see more of this justice, and all our cases are the same because we've been denied justice, and we've been denied a fair trial, and so on. So I thought that theme is is really interesting, that people are really thrilled to sort of see a a fair proceeding. And uh, our final question we always uh, ask our participants is what have you been watching reading or listening to doesn't have to be uh, related to universal jurisdiction or political crimes it can be just what's on your netflix queue what uh, what are you uh, what would you like to share with us gisu first um i don't know if this book is any good so i haven't started it yet but because of 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 what we've been seeing um, in Afghanistan, and and really, you know, that's been quite consuming for the past few weeks. Um, I I uh, somebody gave me a book, Thieves of State, um, by Sarah. I'm probably butchering her name, but Sarah Chase. It's spelled C H A Y E S, and she's talking about corruption. And Afghanistan is one of the case studies. Um, and I have no idea if the book is good, but I, given everything that has happened, I think I'm, I'm really keen to basically learn more about what's been happening over decades and, um, kind of really understand how things, uh, got to this point and what was not reported in the media and what we have not been following. So I'm going to be reading that book, but, for listeners, if they're interested in what we've been discussing, there are a couple of books that I would recommend that sort of touch a bit on these issues. And one is Assassins of the Turquoise Palace. It's by um, an Iranian-American poet and writer named Roya Hakakian. That's actually about the killings of Iranian dissidents in Europe in the 90s and and the early 2000s. Um, I think there's a focus on what's called the Mykonos murders, where a bunch of Kurdish Iranian uh, dissidents were were killed in uh, the Mykonos restaurant in Berlin. And um, although that doesn't relate relate to the 1988 executions, there's just, just this theme of essentially trying to stamp out political opposition in the Islamic Republic, trying to do that, um, whether that's within the borders of Iran or outside of the borders of Iran, because there's been a lot of extraterritorial assassinations, a history of that. So that's a very compelling and gripping read. It doesn't read like a, a boring sort of historical tome. It's it's quite um, engaging. And then I would also recommend Black Wave, which Kim Gattas, who might be familiar to some listeners, has written. And that's actually all about the sort of like proxy war, if you will, between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But it, it goes a lot into the events that 
predate the 1979 revolution in Iran and what happened in the aftermath. And I think that gives a lot of critical context for why we would then find ourselves in a position where the Islamic Republic is trying to stamp out, systematically stamp out political opposition throughout the 80s and culminating in the executions of 1988. So those two books might be interesting for folks. And Naida, is your uh, reading just as on point or are you going for escapism? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I was just going to say I should have prepared for this part better. I, I don't have any book recommendations. This is amazing. I'm going to write to you about all of those, uh, Gizu. But um, no, I we'll think... We'll put them uh, always in the in the show notes uh, with links for people. So uh, don't worry, you don't have to uh, check up. We'll do this for perfect. you. Perfect. No, I, I think I'm more, uh, uh, at least uh, for the time being, more about escapism here. So I'm reading uh, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by, I'm probably also butchering the name here, but uh, Ocean Wong. And uh, currently actually rewatching uh, Succession because there's a third uh, season coming out on HBO in October. So that's the, that's the honest answer. Yeah. We like honest answers. Thank you. And uh, I enjoy Succession as well. So uh... I will be looking forward to uh, to the next season uh, along with you. But we'll stay uh, on top of this trial and um, maybe uh, come back to you if uh, we get some interesting results in the end, if you're both available to help us out with that. Uh, thank you very much for, for taking part. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe give us a rating and spread the word.